Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. This is episode 232 of The Sausage Factory. In this episode, I talk to Tristan Lee Riven of Desperesso Games about their roguelike RPG, Vambrace Cold Soul. But before I delve into that, let's talk about what else is under Canaan Rinse's umbrella. It's quite topical, really, considering how much it's been raining recently. Yeah, um, Paradroid and Paradroid 90, two games I spent an enormous amount of time when with when they were released back in the 80s and the 90s because I'm very old and uh, this features they are featured uh, on this week's uh, episode of Kane and so I say this week's is next week's although it would be this week's if you're a Patreon subscriber we'll talk about that later and then we have Sound of Play on Wednesday celebrating the scores of video games that's the musical scores not the Metacritic ratings I love that joke I say every week. And then we have on Thursdays Playwright, where two people called Ryan invent games based on ideas given to them by their listeners. It's excellent. You really, really should listen to it. Now, if you want to know more about Cane and Rinse, you can. You can pop along to caneandrinse.com, where you'll find blogs, reviews, previews, and also an active forum. <gasps> I know, an active forum in this late age of. 2019, where everyone's on Twitter or WhatsApp. But no, forums still do exist. And there is one on canonwins.com, so do pop along to there. We also have Twitch Stream. That's right. Every Thursday, uh, myself, Darren Gargett, and Carl Moon, sometimes, usually, and possibly even Tony Atkins as well. Four of us set sail across the Sea of Thieves, where we try to find content, which usually devolves into us trying to fish. And on Sundays, there's a variety show where I actually stream games typically linked to Kane and Rince uh, podcast, although sometimes not. Like last week, I just streamed Kane, you know, Kane and Rince. I streamed uh, Darius 2 on the Sega Saturn for reasons. I kind of like my shooters. Terrible at them, but I just did. Anyway, um, next week will be Void Bastards. 
Hurrah! Um, now, if you want to check us some money, you can. Yeah, if you want to show your appreciation for all the stuff we produce here at Cane and Rinse, then you can throw some money our way by subscribing to Patreon. That's right. You can actually just give us one US dollar a month as a minimum, and if you do, you gain access to, well, paid-for content. That's it, behind a paywall. Shocking. But it's awesome. You get a monthly podcast. You get access to Cane and Rinse podcast one week early. And also, it's an extended edition as well, so normally it's limited to two hours, because, you know, Spotify likes two hours. Um, but um, if you, you know, subscribe to Patreon, you get an extended version. Hurrah! And also, we also do platform exclusives, like to, uh, to focus on one particular platform. And uh, so far, we've done, let's see, Game Boy, PlayStation, and uh, the original Xbox. Now, the original Xbox has not been released for the public yet. If you want to listen to that, you have to go and subscribe to Patreon. So please do that if you want to listen to stuff. Also, if you wanted to send us, if you don't like Patreon, and I can understand why, you can send us some, a little bit of like a tip, if you will, via PayPal. Anyway, that's it from me. That's enough of that from me. What? I can't speak. That's enough of that. Let's um, let's listen to my past self to talk to Tristan, eh? Um, hello, past Chris. Tristan! Hello. Who are you and what do you do? <laughs> yeah, so uh, my name is Tristan Lee Riven. I'm a game designer and I'm also the narrative designer at Dev Espresso Games. Um, and we just released a new game called Van Brace Cold Soul. You have indeed, which is why you're here on the Sausage Factory. So welcome. Thank you for having me. That's it's right. very exciting. Yes. <laughs> So, uh, you answered the first question. Well done. You, with your name and what you do for a living, good start. We do start kind of, you know, gently, but it does ramp up. <laughs> hey, that's fine with me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Give, it a, give it to me. <laughs> yeah. So, next question is, how did you make us start making video games? Oh, well... You can go back as far I, as you like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I've always been a lifelong gamer. That's probably true for most people on your show. Um, but I actually got my real professional start in the gaming industry through games media. Um, and that's when I was working for, um, uh, well, it started out as a Korean media company called Azubu. Um, uh, started off as media and then they, uh, switched over to doing esports broadcasting. Um, they were covering and also hosting events like, uh, tournaments for league of legends. Um, and at that time, uh, I had just, uh, finished a career, uh, of teaching English in South Korea. Uh, and I had met a, a student there named Minho Kim, uh, who, uh, some people may know as the artist at Dev Espresso Games. Um, and I ended up inviting him to work with me at Azubu and, uh, we started, uh, working from there, uh, together. And uh, at some point, a few years later, uh, we decided that we wanted to do our own project. Uh, and then having no experience whatsoever in making games, nor any background in creating games, we uh, very optimistically um, set out to create our own studio and um, pretty much failed at just about everything <laughs> we initially set out to do. But it was a very awesome uh, learning experience. Um, at some point, uh, we were living in Malaysia at that time, working on an independent 
uh, working for that that independent project. Um, when it didn't really pan out, uh, Minho moved back uh, to South Korea, uh, and then he started up Dev Espresso Games uh, and uh, tapped me around 2000, late 2014 uh, to begin working together on a game called The Coma Cutting Class, which was the first title we ever released. Um, and we just kind of pulled the collective knowledge that we had gained from all of our, our failures on the first project. And uh, we somehow managed to create a game in all of its flawed glory um, with the coma cutting class uh, and ship that and uh, self-publish it initially, which was also another huge mistake, but a good learning experience. Um, and then uh, from there, uh, we, we published, uh, we had the coma recut published and then uh, began work on Vambrace Cold Soul, which is our biggest title to date and definitely an evolution of everything we had learned from the um, prior experiences as well. And so here I am now. <laughs> what a history. And you say, you know, you learn from the failures, which is a thing we, we do know. But uh, I do love to encourage the fact that you learn from successes as well. Yes. I don't, yeah. don't say that enough. I just want to encourage <laughs> that. It is true, you know, and it's a case of everything. And it's definitely a case of video games because when you succeed in doing something in a video game, you go, oh, well, I'll be, I'll be doing that again then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely true. Um, and all the things that we managed to successfully do, you know, uh, we've always made it a point to kind of take those things for the next project and then kind of refine them and, uh, you know, build up on that and, um you know, find find a better way to implement it. Yeah, what did we do there? Right, let's do that again, only just slightly better because we can't help tweaking things. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Um, I mean, a lot of a lot of Vambrace, it's totally just um, built on the foundation of uh, what we had already made mm. with uh, the Coma Recut. Um, and our next game, uh, which is the coma, the sequel to the coma, uh, it's also building on everything. You know, a lot of stuff that we made in Vambrace as well. Okay. So, oh, it's a very storied history. It's really fascinating. Courageous as well. Not being again patronizing <laughs> for you to do that, but actually step out and go. You know what? I'm just going to do this thing because I want to. Like, that's nuts. Okay, off you go then. And here <laughs> we are. You know, it's. Uh, no, it's uh, I, I admire that uh, courage to actually step out and go because if you don't, nothing gets done at all, right? So yeah, it was uh, it was definitely um, it was an, an in, intimidating proposition, um, but yeah, at the end of the day, you know, I guess I guess it did sort of pan out, um, and um, Minho especially is uh, nothing if not tenacious in you know, just, uh, uh, pursuing game development as well. So he, you know, he spent a lot, a lot of time just, um, dedicating himself to the craft every single day once he decided to go down that road. And, uh, I think that that really helped in the long run with, with things. Yeah. Okay. We'll move on to the third question. Now this one is ridiculous. In indeed, <laughs> most developers go, what? But I think you might be able to, knowing your background and what you just said, I think you might you'd be all right, you'd be fine. Mm -hmm. But here we go. It's a bit nebulous, but um, I've, as speaking for um, Dev Espresso um, Games, as a creative force that you are, mm 
What do you believe are your biggest influences? Oh, yeah, that's um, so many. Uh, and I think like uh, I can only speak for myself personally because uh, I think uh, when you're working on such a small team, everybody's got to wear so many different hats, right? Um, and so we're all bringing some things, some of those things that uh, have been like highly influential on us um, to the table. Um, I, you know, it sounds kind of funny, but uh, I originally grew up in eastern Kentucky um, in a very, very small uh, kind of town uh, out in the Appalachian region. And um, so for me, a kind of escape from uh, my life out there was, uh, through playing those old school JRPGs. Um, I really got immersed into a lot of all, all of those, um, uh, the, just the narrative aspects of, uh, those old games drew me into those worlds. Uh, it just had a huge impact on me. Everything from, uh, you know, the games like Final Fantasy VI, Chrono Trigger, uh, Earthbound, um, in terms of what influences, um, really impact the way that I approach, uh, game development these days, I would say that, uh, those are some huge ones. And then, you know, also my transition over to, um, more narrative driven games like, uh, Metal Gear Solid, uh, which I absolutely adored the script to, uh, and, uh, kind of made me realize that, uh, if I did do anything in games development, I did want to focus specifically on creating very immersive stories with memorable characters uh, and, and make that my, my real focus. Um, and we also wild away the hours playing a lot of board games and tabletop games. Uh, and I think that that also had a, had a huge impact on uh, how I look at games and how I, because I think that, that a lot of game development, uh, the, the purest form of game design is aside from playing a game like rock, paper, scissors, or tag, <laughs> um, probably the purest form of game design, um, is realized in something like a tabletop game. Uh, and it's something that you can kind of sit down and, and, uh, iterate your ideas with, uh, very, very quickly just to see if they're fun. Did I create a fun gameplay loop, um, uh, that people enjoy or did it fail or did it need tweaking? Um, so, Personally, those would be uh, the two big ones uh, for me. Yeah, th th yeah, that's it. <laughs> okay, that's fine. I mean, it's a fantastic answer, and I, I can, I can definitely relate to the pen and paper or the, the analog, so to speak. Um, yeah, um, it's it's really, you know, it's really funny. But I, I always wanted to get into a lot of the pen and paper games as well. Um, I was really obsessed with, uh, things like Vampire the Masquerade or, you know, uh, D and D, but, uh, I just, the, the community wasn't there. Um, I never really had anybody to, you know, um, play a lot of those games with, um, uh, during my formative years. Uh, we had Magic the Gathering, uh, so that was always fun. Uh, but it's, that's a little bit different, but, uh, these days I kind of, um, like to live that experience through other people. Uh, it's kind of interesting. You're able to watch other people play Dungeons and Dragons now. Uh, it is a bit odd. Online. If you told, <laughs> yeah, if you told me that 10 years ago, Bernie was a witch, 
and rightly so. Um, you know, mm-hmm. it, uh, indeed, if I took my phone back ten years ago, I'd be burnt as a witch again. Rightly so. Um, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's the I'm not going to say Renaissance because it's uh, it's it's a glib way of saying it. Something happened to tabletop gaming, and I don't know what, but something yeah. happened to it. That's and, true. Yeah. Um, Lots of people theorizing it. I think the online community uh, of video games where multiplayer games were bringing people together and then eventually people realized that they went to conventions and they met and they realized that there there was a common interest and they realized, actually, what about these weird games coming out of Germany? What's this? Mm-hmm. What's the Catan thing? What? what <laughs> I don't want any wool for the last time. You're not going to get yes. any wool, not for me. And... Um, yeah, it's and now I, I have a, a wall in my living room just filled with board games. And, <laughs> and it's, it's great. It's great. It's fantastic. In fact, tomorrow I'll be spending most of my day playing Twilight Imperium, and that's okay. That's and there are a lot of people that, uh, you know, they've always, you, you know, you've always got the casual scene, right? Yeah, like with yeah, stuff yeah. like uh, Monopoly and Risk yeah, yeah. and things like that, the, yeah. the gateway board games. But yeah. then... You know, I think everybody's got their own story of how they kind of uh, rediscovered this uh, deeper layer of tabletop gaming. Yeah. Uh, and, w- you know, that it that it actually extended beyond that, you know, all those games you were familiar with as a kid. Um, so, yeah. yeah. It's good. For me, like, uh, <laughs> most recently, I, I got, well, this was a few years back. I, I just started collecting uh the zombie side board games wow that, that's yeah amazing. yeah good luck <laughs> from friend as a person who paints miniatures stand away <laughs> <laughs> blast them with a like a like a, a spray like there you go we're all done yeah You're i done. can't even imagine the guys that you know like the warhammer miniatures this is so expensive yeah it's a hobby <laughs> yeah anyway great response to that question and uh yeah it's basically the the joy of games, the mechanics of them, and the experiencing them, and why we play them—that's what your biggest influence is, regardless of their form. Which is very enlightened, uh, and thank you for that. So the next question, uh, this one's a bit tricky to answer because you don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. Mm-hmm. Here we go. What <laughs> developer do you most admire in the industry, and why? Oh, yes, because mm. <laughs> you're going to forget someone, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, this is this is kind of uh, this is an interesting question to approach, because paradoxically, the deeper I got into the gaming industry, the less I kind of stayed abreast of like the awesome like creative developments, especially, you know, on the independent scene, which is where I think a lot of the, the super creative ideas are coming into play. Um Hmm. I really admire. I think for me, uh, when 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 we started to to see um, a lot of experimentation going on in um, the independent uh, gaming industry, I got really into the work of Genova Chen, and um, I thought that he did a really amazing job uh, with games like uh, Journey, Flower, and kind of marrying like an interactive experience with, um, very beautiful sound and, um, gameplay and just creating something to me that 
I honestly feel, I know there's a, a whole different conversation about this brewing, about whether games can be art, but you know, whenever I play a game like Journey, for me, uh, that is a little piece of art. That's a, that's a really beautiful work of art. Um, I really admire stuff like that. Um, things that, you know, anybody can kind of pick up and, and have a really deep, meaningful experience with. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I aspire to that, um, you know, uh, to some degree with, the games that we've made as well, you know, trying to create, um, experiences that are meaningful or at the very least memorable for people that have, um, touched our world. Uh, but I think Genova Chen, uh, does it particularly well. And, um, yeah. So if I had to choose somebody that I thought was, uh, uh, really amazing in that regard, it would be him, uh, on the, interactive narrative side uh i think and probably uh there are a lot of uh your listeners who agree with this or um are huge fans of his work uh kojima son uh i think he's done an amazing job especially with uh you know some of his previous titles and of course the metal gear franchise and really emphasizing uh well-rounded characters and awesome story in his games. Uh, and I, you know, that's that until today has played a huge influence in, uh, how much I want to, you know, have very expressive characters and narrative as well. Uh, so yeah, I would say those, those two would be, uh, are very admirable, uh, figures in the gaming industry for me. They, uh, they've made games that have certainly, touched a lot of the people in different ways um and for me i found that uh you know, journey is very much a game that still has i still get a lump in my throat when i think about the first time i experienced it mm-hmm. uh, which one journey oh yes you just when you know when you realize the only means of communication with the other person that you randomly encountered is this tone yeah and that's what you got <laughs> So you got you got no there's no you know voice com nothing nothing at all that and of course the actions that you commit and there are times since then that I've actually encountered I've seen someone just sitting just sitting down at a near a rock or something like what are you doing just walking up just I did a little tone and they did a tone and they were just chilling they were just like, yeah yep I'm just sort of hanging out for a bit just need to collect my thoughts for some reason oh, okay. I just sat there with them, you know. Okay, it's it's really beautiful. You know, I've I've introduced a number of friends um, to the game who yeah. Yeah. They, they don't identify as gamers. No, and probably the last time they played a game was you know the original Super Mario Brothers or something like that. But you know, they sat down, they played it, and they were able to just get right into it and you know walk away from it saying, "Wow, that was a really." that kind of redefine like how I thought about video games. Um, yeah, they so don't that, know people. Just yeah. Still, they don't know. Like I thought it was just people shooting people in the face. Right. No. Yeah. No, <laughs> I thought I had to get points or, you know, I had, I needed to have lives to get through this thing. Like, um, yeah. So, uh, it's, it's always, you know, it's much like what we're talking about with tabletop. A lot of people don't realize there's this entire 
you know, uh, genre of games, which just aspire to, to just, you know, give people very deep, meaningful experiences. And that's something that kind of inspires me about, uh, you know, inspires me to continue working in the gaming industry because uh, I think as a creative medium, it certainly lends itself to doing that. Yeah, a lot of the uh, a lot of really good screenwriters that play role playing games for obvious reasons. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they need to create characters that they can relate to. So, what better way than actually run them through scenarios to see what happened to them? Because that's just... you know. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, uh, just to get story ideas as well, which just spontaneously kind of create themselves. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, I almost forgot now, mm-hmm. since we're still on the topic, uh, yeah. <clears throat> uh, one of my favorite, uh, game creators is, uh, Shigesato Itoi, um, the creator of the, uh, Earthbound or Mother series, depending on, right. uh, okay. if you're in, yeah. uh, the U.S. or Japan. Um, <clears throat> That was a huge one for me. Mm. Um, and another one where, you know, the story just left a very indelible uh, impression on me. Uh, and I just love that. I just totally adore that series, the characters, the the emphasis on the concept of friendship um, and uh, just the funky humor. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know if, you know, I, I've never played um, uh, a version of the game, uh, the original Japanese version, where the script was um, localized completely um, as it was from the Japanese version. But uh, just the, so, I, so I'm not really certain whether that uh, humor springs from uh, just the guy who actually ended up localizing the game. I can't remember his name, but uh, he just did a magnificent job of uh, creating this really fun-loving atmosphere uh, and uh, very humorous dialogue that kind of permeates the entire adventure. Uh, So uh, very unique uh, and another uh, huge influence. Yeah. It's a um, translation. People think that uh, you're just—it's just code, isn't it? No, 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 no. Language is not not that at all. At no, all. yeah. It's a—it's uh, a huge human endeavor that has evolved over, in many cases, thousands of years. Uh, less with English, because English is a mangled mess. <laughs> it is. Yes, uh, no, it genuinely is. Uh, but uh, certainly um, uh, the. Uh, Chinese and, and, and Japanese, which has very, I mean, there isn't one Chinese language. I know you know this. I know you know this, but uh, having lived there and, and worked there for a while, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's much more, uh, not, I was going to use the word fractured, that's wrong. Fragmented, mm-hmm. maybe. But they have, yeah. you know, not just different dialects, but completely different you know, languages. India is like that. It's, you know, yeah. It's a, so, yeah, it's a really complicated thing. So to take a language and then try to mangle it into this other typically European language, name mm-hmm. one, probably Latin based, that's to say, uh, you lose something. You, know, you lose, and there's, yeah. you need that, there's that. So you can't just do like for like because it becomes out, it squeezes out. Everyone, everyone uses Google Translate. It's just nonsense. Well, not nonsense, but it's just like, <laughs> that's not really, that's not 
Yeah, because we, we, we love to delve into the nuances of our own language and the, and the uses of, for, for example, I find fascinating, the use of um, vari- uh, uh, variables, not variables, but it's more like a modifiers, mm-hmm. modifiers, mm-hmm. Uh, and which then leads itself onto emotive language. Because if you're using modifiers, you're probably talking about something emotively. Yeah. Uh, and that's... Uh- and that's a very sort of, you know, but how you then, I'm, I'm trying to talk, give an example, was how can you get extract that from from, from uh, a, a Japanese or, 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 or a, a, you know, a very yeah. different language? It's difficult. It's, 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 it's certainly a, an extremely fascinating field. And I think it's one that a lot of um, developers, unfortunately, if they have uh, narrative-driven games, they kind of, overlook and you know they just want to get this the the script translated you know uh localized really quickly and and implemented but uh it's it's definitely a very nuanced field uh and one that i'm i'm quite opinionated about Mm. um but yeah yeah there's just an entire art to uh taking a game script and uh turning it into something uh, you know, converting it into a story that the target audience in that particular language is going to, you know, really identify with um, and and understand not only just a word for word translation, you know, you have to be able to to really capture the nuance of, of things. And that can be a very complex um, uh, burden to, yeah. to undertake. Yeah. Um, we had some really funny uh, scenarios with uh, uh, Vambrace because uh, a lot of gamers might not know this, but there's a character in the game uh, that uh, Minho drew specifically to resemble me. Um, and <laughs> not a lot of people know that except for the development team yeah. and uh, my wife, who's Japanese. Uh, she she knows the behind the scenes story of that. So um, she had an early build of the game, and I asked her, you know, could you test the Japanese version and uh, you know see uh, what it's like uh, because she she knows what the English script is like as well, and so she could kind of uh, pick apart some of the differences and, and things like that. But one of the really funny ones uh, that uh, the Japanese localizer decided to do, uh, you know, he had his own way of approaching certain personalities in the game or maybe um, evolving personalities of certain characters that uh, didn't happen to be there. So my particular character, uh, funny enough, uh, who's just a regular bloke, as you'd say, over there, like in the Japanese version, he's more, um, how can I say it, flamboyant. Uh, okay. <laughs> the dialogue, which was really uh, funny and uh, something that my wife noticed. So it was uh, just a little nuance. It's like a big difference between yeah. the two scripts, little things like that. But uh, it was like really cool, I thought, to see that the localizer kind of owned some of the characters and gave them their own tone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If you can do that, fine. Knock yourself out. Mm-hmm. Well, let's move on to the last question of the first half. So you almost made it. Well done. <laughs> What are you playing right now? Oh, mm, what am I playing or what am I watching other people play on yeah, Twitch? Yeah, yeah, or maybe <laughs> that works. Or what are you planning to play after things have settled down? And, uh... Settled down, yeah. yeah. Um, 
There is this game I have been eyeballing uh, for the longest time called Battle Princess Madeline. Oh, I know uh, that's gone. Off you go. Okay, so as <clears throat> as it should be apparent to anybody who has played uh, Van Brace at launch, uh, the developers, we are just a bunch of masochists. Uh, and we like to make very difficult games, uh, and I particularly enjoy difficult games. And I grew up playing uh, Super Ghouls and Ghosts, uh, and am a huge fan of that. And yeah, I streamed uh, that the other week. It was fun. Oh yeah, on, on um, my pal Snes, so or SNES, <laughs> which you and I know, pal. Oh god, but still yeah. fun. The um. Well, you know, uh, stream what you grew up with so you can exactly. relive the experience, you know? That was my argument. And uh, it actually, it wasn't <laughs> emulated, by the way. It was actually my SNES that I was... Oh, cool. So I upscaled it and put, pushed it through my Elgato capture card, and voila, me playing mm-hmm. you know, Super Ghouls and Ghosts really, really badly. <laughs> but well, the point is, I kept on going. Yeah. Uh, how far going. did you make I went and played it fast the first level, but it doesn't matter. I got really close. Got really close, but it's a it's a tough nut to crack. I, um, I think I got to the C bit. I can't remember, but I didn't use any continues. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Anyway, sorry. So uh, yeah. Um, tell us. No, about, yeah. Tell us about the um, was it princess. Damn it. Yeah, it? battle princess Madeline. Battle um, princess so, Madeline, yeah. um, another thing. Uh, paradoxically, I like to tell people who ask me is that. Um, since I became a game developer, I have ended up playing less games than ever. Yes. Um, yes. So, <laughs> I but that doesn't stop me from buying them for no. some reason. No. Uh, yeah. So my Steam library uh, is continues to expand, and I have a bunch of Switch games just sitting there in their wrapper, waiting to be opened. But uh, Battle Princess Madeline, as soon as I have some time, I'm gonna uh, buy that and. Uh, try to relive um, the old days of uh, playing uh, Super Bowls and Ghosts. So, yeah, I was like, really, um, you know, it, it looks like a, a, a total, I mean, it's a total love letter um, to the old game. So uh, very exciting um, to see a game like that out. Yeah. I, I tend to do that, gravitate toward, toward uh, games and, and genres that uh, I'm very familiar with we or are... are we live in extraordinary <laughs> times, don't we? Really, that we can yes. play these incredible games. Honestly, I, I just uh, anyone's got anything to complain about, I just give them, feel like I give them a clip round the ear. Stop it! <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, there are some things granted, mainly from um, certain studios with letters E and A, but <laughs> um, we don't go there. Um, but uh, no, good answer, sir. Good answer. Best of luck with uh, with Battle Princess Madeline. Are you going to need it? But it yeah, like I imagine so. If it lives up to the, you know, yeah. if it is a true love letter to the old game, then yeah. uh, I do expect a steep difficulty. So. <laughs> <laughs> but like I said, the Super Ghouls of Ghost games were designed originally, with this first one, uh, Ghosts and Goblins, that was designed for you to put money into a machine. That was the whole point. Yeah, yes, that exactly. Was the point. You were just jamming whatever currency you had to put in for me, it's 10 pen pieces. For the United States, it was quarters. They're about the mm-hmm. same size. <laughs> exactly. Oh, man. The, the first game, I oh. couldn't get anywhere on that one. Like That was... 
the uh, Super Goals and Ghosts, I was, you know, motivated yeah. enough to like push push through like yeah. quite far into the game. But uh, that That's that fun. first game was really punishing. You can go do one. Yeah. <laughs> Still <laughs> yes. play though. I mean, I, I played it on various eight bit computers because I'm that old back in the day. But uh, mm. yeah. Yeah, getting that torch or the or the uh, flaming torch. No, no, oh. <laughs> worst weapon ever. Anyway, that's enough of that. Let's end the first half. We're now going to the second half where we delve deep into that race. Exciting. Indeed. Tristan, tell us. There's the first question. What is Van Brace Cold Soul? So, Van Brace Cold Soul is a narrative driven uh, roguelite fantasy adventure game. Uh, it is set in um, a gothic fantasy uh, universe. Uh, you take on the role of a female protagonist named Avalia Lyric, and you journey to this cursed city called Isenar, uh, where you find that there are a group of survivors who have taken refuge deep underground from the cursed cold, uh, where they are leading a desperate campaign against an enemy known as the King of Shades. And Lyric has a unique ability that allows her to bypass these barriers that have been erected throughout the city to limit the movements of the people fighting against the King of Shades. And now that she's arrived on the scene, she is using the powers of this enchanted Vambrace uh, to help them uh, lead the fight back against him. Uh, so the player has to construct parties of four. Um, they set out on these dungeon crawling missions. Um, and Along the way, as they're exploring neighborhoods, they will encounter random events, which range from combat encounters, uh, ghostly merchants, uh, traps, uh, strange events, uh, and more. And uh, you have to somehow survive through that 
until you make it to the local boss of the district. And as you play through the game's seven chapters, you will be exploring different quarters of the cursed city. Uh, and uh, each chapter yields uh, more of the story's progress as you go along. So our real goal with Van Brace was to marry um, the roguelite genre, which has more emphasis on permadeath and punishing dungeon crawling uh, missions with an actual narrative and a lead main character uh, whose journey you're following from the beginning to end. Yeah, I mean, Rogue, it was a dungeon crawler, everyone. The, the, yes. <laughs> were, you a, were you an ad sign? No, it's NetHack. Oh, anyway. But uh, yes, it was very, very basic back in the day. But yeah, Rogue, how was the game? Is that uh, what you got started with? Me? No. Uh, genre? Um, I mean... Uh, I, I do understand the concept of, of Rogue and, and, and I have played it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and uh, to see it blossom into this uh, genre of all of itself for the last 15 years or so is quite quite a sight. I mean, uh, I think it's really Binding of Isaac is the one that yeah. uh, everyone gravitates towards. But mm-hmm. um, one thing I think you haven't mentioned, I just want to talk about it uh, objectively and then I'll ask you my first, sort of first design question. Mm-hmm. Uh, which the fact that the presentation of the game is in 2D, so the there's a 2D sort of scrolling, side-scrolling, uh, and you have these avatars beautifully drawn and animated mm-hmm. and avatars, extraordinary lighting, etc. And this is one of the most beautiful games I've ever played, so well done to you and your team. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And, uh, and it reminds me of a very, very old... Because the method you've used of actually somehow representing a 3D world in entirely two dimensions... Um, many people would sort of recite uh, Grim Grimoire, which is fine. You could do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, an excellent series of games as well. Amazingly entertaining. Uh, uh, but I actually go further back to that. Uh, there's a company called Gargoyle Games way back in the 80s, mid-80s, and they made games, and they specialised in this very unique form, which you've used in your game. But this is 1983, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, it's called... They all based it on Celtic Legends. Mm-hmm. Um, so Dundurak and uh, Turnanog, uh, these are all, and, uh, and then, then they went into space and it's Mars Sport, and uh, these are all extraordinary games that they made. And, they, and when I saw this, I thought, oh, I know everyone sort of sites Darkest Dungeon, which we've had on the show as well, uh, and fantastic game as it is. But I, I got more of a feeling for the old, those older games because of the nature of the narrative and the strength of the narrative, because those old games. Nowhere near as large as yours because they couldn't because of the limitations of the hardware, but they had a very, very strong narrative. Mm. You really had to understand what was going on and why these things were happening and you know why you were being attacked by these strange monkey creatures. And it was all, <laughs> you know, very and it just that's what for me brought back memories of that. Now I appreciate you probably not familiar with those games because it's very it's a very European thing. However, um, I just uh, it, it was very welcoming to see and experience and play. And uh, I mean, I first stumbled into onto your game at PAX East. Um, yes, so yes, that's where you and I think met, and uh, so some some months now. In fact, I'm now planning my trip to PAX West. That's great. I will probably meet you there. <laughs> there you go. We'll, we'll catch up afterwards. Yeah. So, um, so yes. No, I think um, it's it's awesome that you that you mention that because um, I think the roguelike 
and roguelite uh, genre, you know, I think it's it's important to make the distinction. Um, yes. But uh, you know, it's it's seen it's definitely seen something of a huge revival um, yes. in recent years, and um, every game uh, that is that that that's being released in those under those genres now, in, including Vambrace. Uh, regardless of whether we, we know the titles or not, we're really building, you know, we're standing on like the shoulders of the giants that came before us. So, um, it's just one of those inescapable, you know, things, uh, creatively speaking, when you look at a lot of the elements of, uh, anything that makes Van Brace work, uh, it's been done before, um, and it's been done very well. And we have a lot of really creative people to, to thank for that. It's just been really fun, uh, you know, uh, exploring and creating, uh, a game that's, um, started off as a very, very, and maybe some people would still consider it a very niche, uh, genre of, of games, but, uh, I'm glad to see it growing and I'm, I'm glad to see more people getting into it. I just love the inventiveness of it all, but <clears throat> first design question. I want to ask you about these, this, this first one. Vambrace's uh, Cold Soul has two resources when you're in, yeah. when you're doing so there's vigor mm-hmm. and then there's like, like terror like geist sort of thing going things are basically mm-hmm. stress for want of a better word fear um, how was their presence and expenditure developed so what I'm asking is clearly you have these two resources I've just named them uh, mm-hmm. you've, you've installed them into them um how did you manage first of all why two resources why did you know for the first thing i know why but (laughs) and the second thing is you know how did you measure how do you balance their expenditure in other words how how, what their let's say expenditure better word their use their their exhaustion or not Mm -hmm. yeah so um this is this is really um, I'm glad you asked this question because I think um, especially when I see a lot of gamers uh, interface with Vambrace, uh, especially the first time around, uh, and uh, a lot of reviewers checking out the game, I see a lot of comparisons between uh, Vambrace and Darkest Dungeon. But if I have to be completely honest about this. Um, when I created the initial game design build uh, for Vambrace, which we used as the foundation to to work on Vambrace, I had probably pe- played Darkest Dungeon a total of, well, until today, a total of 21 minutes um, in my whole life. So um, it where, where a lot of the game's design inspiration came from were two things. Um, first of all was the game uh, Faster Than Light, and then secondly was the very early prototype of the game uh, that we built as an adapted version of what would happen if we took faster than light uh, system of bouncing from node to node and sector to sector and then converted that into a fantasy setting with uh, a party-based system. And the aesthetics of the party-based system uh, – it's, I, I do believe that Minho may have found some ways of representing certain concepts um, 
uh, found some inspiration through Darkest Dungeon. But it was also a natural extension of where we initially came from with the Coma, which is a side-scrolling game as well. So it was just a very natural for us to maintain that side-scrolling aesthetic and then transition over to that with uh, Vambrace. Uh, and then you've got these two things uh, that keep up the pace of how the dungeon exploration works. And so the reason why I mention all of this is because if you're familiar with FTL, um, you're being pursued as you're exploring this, uh, the galaxy, trying to travel from one end of the galaxy to the other. You're constantly being pursued by this rebel fleet. And uh, you're encouraged to explore around as much as you can, but if and when they catch up to you, um, that's when you know you're in trouble because you have to get into, um, this very difficult, uh, combat scenario, uh, and you don't really gain anything from it, but you have everything to lose. And so, uh, when we were initially, uh, creating Vambrace, we wanted that very similar mechanic. We wanted people to be able to explore through the dungeons. Uh, we wanted them to encounter random events but we also wanted a punishing mechanic in place uh, that would force players to keep up the pace of uh, going from uh, neighborhood to neighborhood in the game. Um, that was our initial plan. And we mocked it up as a tabletop experience uh, with dice and um some of Minho's drawings and cards and stuff like that. And what we soon noticed is that, yeah, the, the geistometer, uh, which is uh, this device which is measuring the ghost fog and letting you know when these powerful shades are encroaching on your position, um, what we soon realized was we, we wanted to pressure the player even more with more survival decisions. So... Um, we have the geistometer, which is measuring the presence of the shades, but we also have vigor, which is depleting as you explore um, through, the, through the neighborhood streets. And vigor is something that no matter what you do, whenever you, you move from street to street, it drops. Uh, and the only way to really recover it is to set up camp uh, and rest properly and uh, use uh, the items that you have at hand to, to keep your party um, motivated enough to continue on the expedition. Um, when it all comes together, uh, our ultimate goal with that was to create challenging expeditions where players really got a sense of, I'm setting out on this thing, there's no going back. Uh, I have to keep going forward and then a real sense of accomplishment and a real sigh of relief when you stumbled on a campsite or when you made it out of the neighborhood and you're able to to get to a, a shelter and craft new items to, to patch up your uh, comrades with. So, uh, yeah, we really wanted to emulate the feeling of what it would be like or feel like to be on a very harrowing expedition. For me, it felt like the aliens model, because <laughs> basically they start off guns are blazing, and they, then they retreat and get scared, regroup, mm. do it again, regroup, do it again, and end the film. 
<laughs> yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> I can see that too. <laughs> and uh, so it's not an insult against you uh, or your team. It's just a, the way you described it. Like, yeah, that's that's what happens in Aliens. <laughs> so that's that's quite interesting. Although you don't have assault rifles, which you know, sad. Yes. <laughs> like, maybe maybe Van Brace too. Van Brace too. Yeah. The dwarves will figure it out. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> what would we be without the M41A? I don't know. Um. Now I'm going to talk about narrative because we've there's a fantastic response to that, and I just wanted to get out of you because people don't really understand. Uh, there's so many different ways to actually encourage people to understand that they are in mortal danger. Yeah, and various board games and video games have tried to uh, encourage the idea of cause and effect, consequences, hugely mm-hmm. important in RPGs. I know you understand that, but it's those who aren't familiar with them. Uh, you get you get the murder hobos, and the only way to stop them, <laughs> the only way to stop murder hobos is yeah. consequences. Put them in prison, have them beheaded. Nothing you can do about it. I've done it before, my friend. Anyway, <laughs> the realm of uh, Isenair feels really claustrophobic and oppressive. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you believe you encourage this, uh, or indeed enhance this atmosphere, and why is it there? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, the the missions themselves are um, a claustrophobic nightmare, um, at least as they were originally intended. The game's difficulty was a lot steeper until we started listening to uh, community feedback and realized, OK, maybe maybe we should just uh, revisit this and let's, dial it down a yeah, little bit. Let's, let's take it off 11. <laughs> <laughs> But but the the missions themselves were were meant uh, to make you feel like these isolated adventurers on an expedition, but at the same time uh, to to give you a real sense of accomplishment once you manage to get through it and you return back to the hub world, which is called Delark, the um, kind of safe space, the underground city deep below ice and air. Um, and so, uh, we wanted, you know, uh, since we knew like a lot of players, uh, would probably like, uh, to take a break from the dungeon crawling, uh, for extended periods of time between, uh, chapters, or they would probably constantly be revisiting Del Arc, um, because, uh, making tactical retreats is a very important element in this game. Uh, we knew that we had to make, a kind of claustrophobic space, as you put it, but also keep it interesting enough to motivate players to continue going back and exploring it and meeting the denizens uh, there and getting to know their stories. Um, And so that's why in Dalark we have essentially in this single enclave, we have varying various factions, which have kind of secluded themselves in their respective corners and, uh, it's up to the player, you know, and how motivated uh, he or she is to uh, really journey into those spaces and, and meet those characters and encounter these kind of optional subquests between chapters um, to, to flesh out the lore and the uh, universe there. Uh, and I think it lends itself uh, pretty well to the energy, at least that was the hope, to the energy of the main campaign because you feel much more invested in embarking on a very difficult quest um, when 
you can familiarize yourself with the characters involved and you care about their motivations and their personalities. Um, or you just look forward to, to seeing them and, and hearing how things have developed or, um, maybe certain decisions that you made on the campaign or during the subquest may have affected the way, uh, you get treated by these, uh, individuals. So we, we definitely wanted to make that world a very lived in one, um, and, uh, in a very simple way, so to speak, but, but one that did feel like a temporary home away from the, uh, icy surface. Hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's, um, like I say, you do feel barricaded in and the only mm-hmm. way to break out is to bring an end to this mess and only you can do it. So, uh, that's what I felt that it's, it's a really good sort of, uh, push out there. Like, well, if you want to stop feeling like this, you know, <laughs> yeah and it was definitely important that because you know in this story these people have been trapped underground for a very long time um and it isn't until lyric arrives that uh somebody who can kind of shake up what's been happening uh finally comes into the mix right and so you as the player you're experiencing this through her perspective your your and i think that's fitting because you are a newcomer and she is as well. So you get to grow with the city and earn their respect by finishing these different expeditions as well. The tactics uh, in doing the combat are very important positioning, timing, that kind of thing. Um, how do you believe Van Brace Cold Soul actually communicates this? To the player, and that to, so everyone knows that uh, it's a turn-based combat system, and it's quite vital that you are readying your your people and they're in the right place to, in order to enact um, a combat. So, tell us a little bit how that was designed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it was really important because uh, we are uh, such a small team, uh, and we, you know, for the scope of what we wanted to accomplish with Van Brace, uh, we wanted to actually, we intentionally set out from the outset to kind of create, um, a more minimalistic combat system, but, a uh, a system that placed much more emphasis on actions such as retreating away from combat, or blocking attacks, um, crafting equipment to bolster or change uh, certain special attacks and stuff like that. So we wanted uh, each of the mechanics we built into the combat to have a much more, a much heavier weight than you would typically encounter in other turn-based uh, role-playing or roguelike games. Um, so, and, and I think that that is something that really differentiates Van Brace, I think, from a lot of other uh, contemporaries. Uh, and that has both worked to our favor to some degree and has also, interestingly enough, worked against us uh, with uh, some of the players who come in expecting uh, Van Brace to be a very stat-driven game where you have to do a lot of grinding and level up your characters and, and stuff like that. The emphasis here is more on uh, some very simple skills, which are very relevant to the expeditions, um, finding your own play style with uh, groups that uh, and ca- with 
skills and the character makeup that uh, appeals to your way of conducting the expeditions, uh, getting loot, crafting those items to uh, enhance your characters. And then Lyric is the only character, the main character, that levels up throughout the game as uh, you continue from chapter to chapter. Um, but we did uh, want to keep it, uh, you know, uh, from the beginning, our approach was uh, to bring a sort of uh, minimalism to the way we approached combat where uh, there would still be some heavy emphasis on the tactics that you use to finally get through a campaign and make it to the boss dungeon. And I think, uh, especially in the earlier builds of the game, um, your decisions and your, your progress to the boss dungeon was heavily influenced by everything from how often you blocked to how often you ran from combat to look for an alternate route around, uh, dangerous streets, um, to, having the right items uh, to replenish your, your, your comrades uh, during uh, lulls at campsites, things like that. All of those things had a kind of heavy influence on whether you succeeded or not, and uh, the weight of your decisions would accrue over the course of the expedition. Um, so that was mainly our, our, our goal with that. For me, it felt like I was having to discover... Maybe the wrong word. I'm going to use it anyway. The the lexicon of the of the game. It's like you have a very not strict. It's not right. You have a set of a structure that you present to the player. And problem is with video game players, they think, "Oh, I've done this before." No, no, mm -hmm. no, no, no. You haven't. No, you yeah. Haven't. And that's that's the thing. And the you just you you people are getting sort of a slaughtered because they don't learn. They think, "Oh, this is going to be like this." Oh, no, it's not. Okay, sure, it's going to be like, oh, no, it's not. It's like, no, this isn't Banner Saga. <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm, I'm so glad you, you brought it, you brought that up. Um, and, and, and people, you know, are, are definitely free to gravitate toward whatever combat system pleases, pleases them most. But, you know, if they're going into this expecting, like you were saying, uh, uh, Sort of a, a typical stat-driven, you know, uh, grinding sort of, yeah. in that sort of game. Yeah. This is this is not it. No. And uh, I was just having a conversation the other day. You know, like a lot of you know the 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 reviews that have fallen against uh, Van Brace um, about particularly about the combat system. Um, uh, there's a bit of a you know when you, when you when you use old tropes of, you know, uh, from, well, let's say familiar tropes from yes. RPG games, such yep. as, you know, the ability to block retreat and stuff like that. Yep. There's a kind of, um, there's an artifact of, uh, a cultural expectation that goes along with what that skill is supposed to do and how it's supposed to function. And um, so when you try to reimagine that in a strong way uh, and then balance it in a campaign where you don't really feel the effects of making those decisions early on, but you heavily feel the effects late in the expedition because you chose to not run from certain combat encounters or you were not. Uh, paying attention to how enemies attacked and, and blocking at the right time and finding that rhythm. 
um, there you're you're kind of fighting a cultural battle there um, with with um, people ha- who have different expectations of of how that should work, and that's an understandable conflict <laughs> to kind of encounter, um, I guess, when you when you design something like this. But uh, if I can only just speak to our intentions for how we designed it initially, um, that was the goal was um, exactly uh, to create a system that was minimal, but um, where each particular thing you had at your disposal was uh, heavily weighted in how it affected the way your party looked (laughs) by the time you got toward the end of the expedition, whether you were totally beat up and barely hanging by the skin of your teeth or um, uh, arrived in good shape to the boss dungeon. Last question. I know, all good things do (laughs) indeed come to an end, but I have to ask this. And I'm asking this directly to you, uh, just in knowing your background. How, I'll use the word difficult, because I've written these questions down, but I've used the word difficult. how, How have you found creating a narrative to a roguelike game. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> thanks for asking that because, um, to be honest, aside from actually building the game itself, um, struggling with the um, conceptual framework of, of how we would integrate a narrative with a roguelite um, was a very challenging one for us to approach. Um, because a roguelite uh, is a genre where you know uh, your decisions have huge consequences, and often those consequences mean uh, you lose your entire progress and character forever, uh, and that's kind of uh, expected. And so we we want it to keep some element of that in the game, thus. We have permadeath for your other party members. But we also wanted to tell this really amazing uh, story that kind of unfolded across several chapters uh, through a central character. And so uh, we very well couldn't have players, you know, getting to chapter five of this really, really long narrative. And then if she dies... It's just over and you have to do the whole thing all over again. Well, we could have, but uh, we're, we're not that evil. So, um, <laughs> so the idea came to kind of uh, divide, you know, uh, I, I mentioned FTL earlier um, in, the, in the cast, but uh, as much as I've played that game, I've actually never beaten it. Um, I can't tell you how many hours I've sank into it trying that, to that last get boss. Oh, yeah, wow. I got, I've, I've made it to the last boss and you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a guy that really goes on to the forums and like, or wikis and, and checks the optimal build outs. I'm just, when I have time to play, I jump in, just play and see if I can make it through. And every time I get to that boss, I die. And the idea was, all right, well, what if each chapter was like a miniature version of that? And then the reward was coming back to the town and then the story would continue with the main character and you could, you could uh, see where it goes next. And then when the next expedition comes, you again embark on another one of those uh, trips. And so um, 
the only way we could do that was, you know, if we had a lead character um, who was central to the story, but uh, did not the permadeath issue uh, did not uh, stick to her. But we wanted to create a situation where you did have comrades and you painstakingly crafted really good equipment for them uh, to level them up and stuff. And if you lost a comrade, uh, it was a real pain in the ass because, you know, especially toward the end of the game, you had to farm really interesting materials and loot to be able to get them where you needed to be, where they needed to be for your optimal party makeup and stuff. So, um, uh, yeah, we still wanted players to have that feeling of loss, but, um, we also wanted them to enjoy the story. So, uh, we went through a few iterations of it, but, um, uh, I think we, we found one that really worked for Vambrace. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, it uh, really does somehow do what many people thought was impossible, actually add a narrative to what is ultimately a game, although you have to, you're going to have to start again. Yes. And it's like, well, where's my sense of progression? Well, there is, and <laughs> something you've managed to finagle it in. Yeah, um, and I think you hit the nail on the head when you say, yeah, you have to start again. And that's why we tried to make each expedition so damn difficult, because we still want the player to feel like, oh, I have to start again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're not going to put you at chapter one, but we'll put you back at the beginning of this expedition, which yeah. is still going to be a big challenge. Yeah. So that's the, that's the structure, everyone. That's yes. how it's supposed to work. This isn't like other, you know, this isn't. Bit like Slay the Spy in some regards, but yeah, it's uh, we've had on the show as well, so that's why I can reference them. It's all right, uh, lovely people. Um, so there it is, uh, Van Brace Cold Soul, uh, by uh, Deva Espresso Games is out now on Windows, PC, Mac, and Linux, and later on this year, uh, Q3, I understand, on Switch, mm-hmm. Xbox One, and PlayStation 4. Um, Tristan, it's been fantastic having you on. Yeah, likewise. Thank um, you for uh, having me on on the show. I, I hope you got something out of it. I know I did. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And you're more than welcome to come back. It's had about one adventure you've got cooked up in your head. I'm looking forward to any time. Okay. Any time. Thanks very much. Thank you.